Amen. Let's grab our copy of Scripture, open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is where we'll begin, page 1115 on the Pew Bible in front of you. We've been talking about uh, this gift, this wonderful, wonderful gift and tool that God has given us called repentance. And uh, we've, uh, we began a discussion about the shovel of repentance with regards to this uh, salvation, this field uh, that we're discussing, that God has given us. Um, he's given us a, a salvation to work out. And so as we endeavor to work out all that God has for us in Christ, this process of sanctification, uh, really the, the, the primary tool which we'll use is repentance. And so we've started a conversation about that, and I know that um, there's a few loose ends I want to pull together tonight so that uh, it's very important that we have a handle on what God has to say about this issue of repentance. So I want us to just begin tonight by looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. We alluded to this last week where the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to see God. Do you want to see God? Repentance. Repentance is so very important and central to seeing God. Let's pray and ask God that He'd help us tonight. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, we we thank You for this beatitude, that is this blessing that is bestowed upon us in Scripture, Lord. So thank you that blessed are the pure in heart for they can see God. Lord, we, we give you glory and praise for your word. We ask that you give us ears to hear that we might comprehend the glory of the scripture that we'll see tonight. Thank you for the gift of repentance. And Lord, for your table, which we will celebrate tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I said that repentance is much more than the common understanding of, of a vague and general sense of guilt or self-loathing. That truly what God endeavors for us to understand about repentance is really best summed up by the definition that uh, I believe is the best definition of repentance uh, I've ever seen. It's by uh, uh, a wonderful theologian named J.I. Packer. And he says... That repentance is turning from as much as we know of sin to give as much as we know of ourselves to as much as we know of God. That repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. That repentance leads us to a deeper relationship with God. And so it, it spurs forth. It, it's like the fuel of sanctification. It brings us ever closer to that which God uh, desires for us to be. And, and we saw last week, we looked at Psalm 32, and we saw this pattern where as we repent, as we uncover our sin, the way David puts it, God then covers it. And it's this process that goes. And so I showed you in Psalm 32 that in verses 1 and 2, David said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Then he turns right around in verse 5 and says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. And what that's illustrating for us is this this pattern where as we uncover our sin, as we repent, as we confess our sin, God then covers it. And so in the covering of sin, we see this glorious uh, uh, transaction, this glorious blessing and grace that's bestowed upon us from the Lord. And there are many, many obstacles to the confession of sin because we try to, we try to come up with man-centered things that we can substitute for repentance. We can, we can uh, blame shift. We can redefine it. We can say, well, that's not really, really wrong what I'm doing. It, maybe it was wrong in one culture, but it's not wrong in our culture. We can, we can try to medicate away, deaden the, the, the consequences of it, or we can try to uh, take our, our lack of repentance and then the, and the struggle that comes with it, and then we turn it on other people and we become critical of other people and we try to hurt other people. Or we can mask it by trying to overcompensate in other areas, but there's some, some secret sin or some area of our, our life where we're unyielding towards God, which only causes more problems in the future. Or, rare, but some people just embrace it. And what they do is they just make themselves feel miserable and they just embrace this misconception that repentance is self-loathing and they make themselves out to be more spiritual in their disgust with their self, which is utterly and completely, again, unbiblical. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to propose a, a challenge tonight. I'm gonna, you're going to have to have your thinking caps on because I'm going to press you a little bit, okay? Because last week we talked about the power of guilt and again, in Psalm 32, we saw that David said he kept silent. When he kept silent, his bones grew old. And through the groaning all day long and day and night, his, he says the Lord's hand was heavy upon him and his vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So that there, there's, there's this, this physical experience and this emotional, spiritual experience of, of, of refusing repentance, of trying to of trying to swindle away or trying to negate repentance and hold on to our sin or deny our sin or whatever the case may be. And it, it, causes, there, there's, it causes a problem within us that we experience. Okay, that's important for you to understand. And it's, it's something that you can't run away from. Let me just ask Jonah when you see him how that worked out for him. You can't run away from it. And it's going to drain you down. It's going to wear you out until your vitality is like a drought because it just eats you up. Everything you do, everywhere you go, there, there it is before you. But what is the payoff of repentance? What happens when we repent? And what does David say back in Psalm 32? These scriptures will come up. The payoff of repentance. When he gets to verse 7, he says to God, after he's confessed his sin, he says, Now you're my hiding place, and you shall preserve me from trouble, and you'll surround me with songs of deliverance. Notice the proximity of what David is saying and notice the, the personal nature of what is happening. One minute he's, he, he, he feels like he's in a drought and the heavy hand of God is on him and he's, his bones are aching and groaning and then he repents and God covers his sin and now he's close to God. God is his hiding place. He, he's surrounded and comforted by these songs of deliverance. And then God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you 
with my eye. In other words, you see the you see how this personal, how we go from distance to closeness. And it's through this process of repenting. So last Wednesday night, I made this statement in Wednesday night Bible study. I said, you know, I wish that Scripture just laid out in one verse what it says about prayer. You know, the Bible says we ought to pray without ceasing. And I said, I wish the Bible said we should repent without ceasing. It would make it so much easier for me to to teach this. But really, that's what the Bible infers in a million different ways. And after Wednesday night, Brother Dale came up to me and he said, you know, think about how just the Lord's Prayer infers this unceasing repentance. Jesus, when He teaches the disciples to pray in Luke chapter 11, He says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who's indebted to us, right? And so in the model prayer even is built in this continual repentance. It's all over Scripture. So now here's where I want to press you. How is it that Jesus teaching His disciples to pray? He's not teaching pagans to pray. He's not teaching a prayer of salvation. He's teaching... He's been praying to the Father which ignites the conversation with the disciples that they want to know how He prays. They want to know how how this relationship with God works. And so then He then tells His disciples, He says, you as you pray, one of the things you do is you continually come before God and ask God to forgive your sin. Now I thought that our sin is already forgiven. Then John comes along in 1 John chapter 1 and says, Confess your sin, and God's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now, if you're familiar with 1 John, you know that in chapter 1, John is giving these tests to authentic faith, to know whether you're truly a believer or not. And so John makes that statement in the context of, if you say you have no sin, well, then you're a liar. And the, and the truth of God is not in you. So if you're in Christ, why do you pray for forgiveness? Why would a believer whose sin has been forgiven confess their sin and God's faithful and just to forgive them? I thought our sin was already forgiven. I'm pretty sure that just a few minutes ago we sang a hymn. And in that hymn, in the second stanza, we said that we're justified fully through Calvary's love. Isn't that what we said? Yeah. Are we just singing stuff or or do we believe it? That's what it said. Justified means we are declared Not guilty before God. That our sin has been atoned for. All of our sin. It's a judicial move by a holy and just God who is the judge of the universe. Now, is that true? Amen? Then why are you confessing? Why are you being cleansed? If you're already cleansed, Why? 
That's an important question. Because in that you find this gift, this glorious gift of repentance. Turn to John chapter 13. Just flip over to the Gospel of John. You're already in Matthew, so just flip over a few books. Go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, where Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room. I taught on this passage not too long ago. It's familiar to everyone in this room. They're in the upper room. Jesus is there with His disciples. And uh, look at verse... Six, remember Jesus gets up from the table, gets a basin, fills it with water, girds himself with a towel, right? He's about to wash the disciples' feet. Now look at verse six. So then he comes to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? I mean, Peter is just utterly aghast. What are you, what, what are you doing, Lord? You, you're not washing my feet. Verse 7, Jesus answered him and said, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. So Peter then says to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Well then, Lord, by all means, scrub me down. Dump it on my head. I mean, let's take a bath. And Jesus says in verse 10, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean, but not all of you. Now, just in case somebody might get confused... And think that, but not all of you, is referring to Peter, which it is not. Verse 11 says, he said this for he knew who would betray him. So who the one who is not clean is Judas, right? All right, now let's focus on Peter for a second. Peter says, you're not washing my feet. Jesus responds to him and says... One who is clean, who's already bathed. You're already clean. You just need to wash your feet. He says to Peter, you are completely clean. But your feet need to be washed. Now, what does this mean? Peter is completely clean. Peter is fully justified in Christ. Peter has been declared not guilty. Peter is totally free from the penalty of sin. Do you understand? That's what completely clean means. But, as much as that is a picture of justification, that Peter is utterly and completely free from the Penalty of sin. Jesus is making a very important distinction here. The washing of feet represents sanctification. He's completely clean, yet Jesus is going to wash his feet. 
Now that kind of mixes us up a little bit. Because now wait a minute, he's not completely clean because his feet need to be washed. No, he's completely clean. And yes, his feet need to be washed. If you're here tonight, you are completely clean, but your feet need to be washed. Why? Because you walk in a fallen world. And the debris of this life needs to be washed off your feet. But you are completely clean. Make no mistake about it if you're saved. Peter is clean, but he's still a sinner. Tony is clean, but he's still a sinner. If you're saved, you're clean, but you're still a sinner. You see, he's free from the penalty of sin because he's completely clean. But he needs his feet washed to experience freedom from the presence of sin in his life. This is what sanctification is. This is why you confess your sin, which you're already completely clean of, And God is faithful and just just to cleanse you and forgive you of all unrighteousness. Come on now, you got to stay with me. You only take one bath. One bath. One time. The blood of Christ applied to you completely cleans you. Yet you are still a sinner. So here's my question. Is anyone in this room under the delusion that because you are saved, sin no longer matters to God? That because you're clean, you can just... Do whatever you want to do. You can just send up a storm. Well, well, no, I'm not saying that. Well, then what are we saying? You see, we, we so freely admit certain things, but we don't think them through. See, on one hand, we're quick to just jump in the camp and know because you're, you know, you're smart people. And you say, well, wait a minute, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm totally forgiven. Amen. Thank God. Then on the other hand, we're quick to go, but you know, I mean, I'm not perfect, I still sin. Okay, amen, but here's the thing. So what do you do about that? Those two things are true, but we just... Well, of course not. Of course not. So we take one bath, but we need our feet continually cleansed because we're not perfect, right? I mean, I hope this is connecting. This is this will set you free. I mean, this this is man. We're 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 sticking the key and turning the lock, and man, we're fixing to open the box to soaring in your relationship with God right here. So if, you, if, you, if you're not with me, you need to get there. The cycle is never ending. 
It's never ending. It's ever present. The door is always open. The invitation, the green light is always on. Vacancy is always there. God's always willing to receive you and accept you. So the question is, how far do you want to go? Here's how the cycle goes. Okay, the cycle of repentance. You repent. Metanoia means to change. You change. You you turn, literally turn directions. You don't feel sorry for, for your sin only. You respond to your sin by changing. You repent for your sin. And when you repent for your sin, it leads to a greater revelation of God. The greater revelation of God then leads to a greater love relationship with God. This greater love relationship with God then leads to a greater level of surrender. A greater level of surrender creates in you a greater sensitivity to sin, which creates in you a higher propensity to do what? Repent. And it starts all over again. And so now you repent because you realize how great repentance is. So you repent. And then in your repentance, God covers your sin, draws you into Him. You see a greater revelation of Him. You see a greater revelation of Him. You fall deeper in love with Him. You fall deeper in love with Him. You're more sensitive to the sin in your life. You're more sensitive to the sin in your life than when your feet get dirty, you take off running to get them clean. And it goes around and around and the deeper and deeper. And guess what? You can go for as deep as you want. I mean, it's right there on a silver platter. How, how, how deeply, how intimately do you want to know God? The door is open. It's not locked. You knock on the door. Jesus says, I'll open the door and I'll come in and do what? Sit down and dine with you. Why does he say that? Because what does, what does the Lord desire in His relationship with you? Intimacy. Intimacy. That's why He says if, he, if you open the door, He'll come and sit down with you. Because He loves you. He wants intimacy with you. And so the, He says... Here I am. And we look around and we see people who are swimming in the depths of the grace of God. And then we see other people in the same church who hear the same sermons, who have the same opportunities, who have all the same, who just tread water in the kiddie pool. Now, why? And then we make up things in our head that simply aren't true. We say, well, you know, I mean, I'm just not as smart as they are. That's not true. We say, I'm, I'm just not as uh, intellectual as they are. That's not true. I just don't read as well as they read. That's not true. That's not true. 
It's not true. You know why? Because none of those things have anything to do with your repentance. None of them. Your education has nothing to do with repentance. You know what has to do with repentance? Pride and arrogance and stiff-necked hard-heartedness. That's what it is. It's saying, you know, here's why. Here's why people just sit and never grow. Because they don't want to change. Because they go, no, I'm not, I don't want to do that. And so you know what they do? They hear a sermon, God calls them to respond, and they go, nope, not doing it. And the ones that are, that are spiritual, you know what they do? They just respond in a different way. They, they hear a sermon about something, and so they go, uh, I don't know how that's gonna work, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, so then they go, but, but I'm gonna start serving. See, God? I got I'm working in the church. I gotta, I'm, I'm serving. But God's talking to you about that right there. And you know what happens? As soon as God speaks to you about this, as soon as you say no, guess what gets turned off? The deeper revelation. And as soon as the deeper revelation gets turned off, then the deeper love relationship gets turned off. And as soon as that gets turned off, and then pretty soon what happens? What happens to people who tread water in the kiddie pool? They're not sensitive to sin. They're the ones that I have conversations with every week. I'm like, you do what? You did what? And they're like, everybody does that. I'm like, I don't do that. Are you crazy? You watch. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. Be honest with yourself. Can you sit and watch something that is vulgar and a reproach to God and just watch it and laugh at the jokes and watch the things and it doesn't bother you? How do you think that happened? Because let me explain something to you. There's a bunch of people in this room, they can't watch that. It's too painful. You know why? Because they're repenters. Because when you repent, you grow. You repent, you grow. And when you don't repent, you don't grow. And guess what? You're fully cleansed. You are totally clean. But your feet are disgusting. I mean, it's good news, people. It's good news. Because in a few minutes, everybody in here is going to have equal access to the pot of water, to the Son of God. He says, bring me your feet. I'll clean them. And guess what? Those of you in the room that are concerned, maybe your feet are so dirty, they're so caked up, they're so built up. It may take a few, you know, a few scrubbings to get those suckers clean. What's the Bible say? He's faithful and just to do what? Cleanse you of how much unrighteousness? All of it. 
all of it. And guess what? Then you see a greater revelation of God. And then you turn and when you see a clearer picture of God, you then see a clearer picture of Love. You see a clear picture of what He's done. See, here's the thing. This is what I've been thinking about for two days. I've been thinking about this talk we're having right now. And I've been thinking about how I am so grateful that every time I turn around, I realize... God's even better than I thought He was. And just when I think He is so awesome and so great that it cannot get any better, I get my feet dirty. And I repent. And then He shows me that He's even better. And then I fall more in love with Him. And then I'm more sensitive. And I I find myself saying, Lord, I just want to be... I want to be where if a speck of dirt is on my feet, I can't stand it. I'm not there. My goodness, I'm not there. Man, am I not there. So we were sitting at the dinner table the other night and my daughter is in one of her giggling fits about uh, she was so amused at this uh, interaction she had with my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law was was just, uh, you know, her and Kayla were going to do something and to make a long story short, there could potentially have been a little bit of confusion with, you know, what they were going to do. And so my mother-in-law got the phone and called the place that they were going and was making sure that, that, all the, that they understood everything about what was about to happen because she couldn't bear the thought that there would be some confusion and that, it, you know, that then that they might think that she in some way was deceitful. Now, my daughter thought it was hilarious because it was so utterly obvious to her and so ridiculous. And so Kayla was just cracking up because my mother-in-law was, you know, in a little bit of a panic about this. And as I watched this whole thing unfolding, I realized, well, there's my sermon illustration right there, that she, my mother-in-law, has been repenting for so long that even the possibility... I mean, Taylor was like, no one would do that. No one would pick up the phone and call. I mean, obviously, but it didn't matter. If there was one tiny, minuscule, possible chance that somehow... It could be a bad witness. My mother-in-law wouldn't have anything to do with it. You know what? That comes from years of repenting. 
That's how you get there. You repent. So if there's anything, anything for you to devote yourself to, repentance. When God speaks to you, move. My goodness, move. Move. I mean, no matter how crazy it seems, no matter how far-fetched it seems, but when the, my, the scariest thing to me, the scariest thing in the world to me is that, that my children would develop a tendency to say no to God. That, that horrifies me. You know why? Because what else would I be scared of? They're clean. They're clean. But my goodness, I don't want them walking through life with dirty feet, swimming in the kiddie pool all their life. No. I want them to have a deep abiding sensitivity to sin where they repent and and there's a revelation of God and a deeper love of God and then a greater surrender. And it happens in that order. And it just goes on and on and on and on and so some of you in this room, you're just thinking of multitudes of time in your life where this is, is taking place. Some of you, this light bulb is going off and you're going, oh. Let me tell you, this principle has been in effect in your life, whether you realize it or not. You know, it's not like, you know, I, I wasn't ever growing until I figured this out. No, it's just a natural progression. You just sort of, you know, you just move with it. You don't really understand it. No one ever sat down and explained this to me when I got saved. Hey, let me explain this to you. I mean, I didn't get it. But over time, just realizing that, hey, God, when He calls, it, calls me to do something and you do it and then you see God move in it and then you think, oh, yeah, and you don't understand, you think that you're more apt to then follow God the next time because the last time worked, but what you, you really don't understand the depth of what has occurred. But either way, I think of all the things I could have said no to God about. And what would I missed? I was horrified. Horrified. I felt God calling me into ministry. And let me tell you, you have never in your life in any situation in your life, have you ever had better reasons to not do something than I had to not go into ministry? Because I was right. God simply didn't understand. There's no way this could be right. There's no way God could be. Are you crazy? I'm the last person. But He's calling me. He's calling me. And you just step out. And watch what God does. Watch what He does. Your vision with regards to Jesus Christ is proportionate to you assuming 
responsibility of who you are, what you are, what you've done, and what you can do. In other words, repentance, your, your sanctification is linked by an unbreakable bond between you and repentance. And if you harden your heart against God and say no, and you think, well, I'll just do that and I'll suffer the consequences, what are the consequences of that? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What could be worse than coming to the end of this life and finding out, oh, I could have seen God? I could have walked deeply and intimately with God? I could have experienced the depths of His beautiful nature and character. I could have swam in the ocean of His grace, but instead I chose to sit in the kiddie pool of my immaturity. Why? Because I was afraid to change. I was afraid that giving up my sin was going to be too costly. I was afraid that admitting that I was wrong was going to make me look too bad. I was afraid that if I followed God, I would lose my little trinkets of this world. If I was, what, 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 what is it? It's a bunch of nonsense. God has invited us to the greatest possible adventure. And so so the Lord is the righteous judge has wiped away, has wiped away the penalty of our sin and salvation. But now let's don't be confused. Let's don't be confused. Sanctification is washing away the presence of sin in our lives. Now, though our sin is forgiven... The righteous judge forgives, but the loving father chastens. They don't cancel each other out. They simultaneously work in beautiful perfection at the same time. In other words, saved people are forgiven. Forgiven people face the consequences of sin. Not the penalty of sin, but the consequences of sin. Right? Yes. And so if you act recklessly, if you choose to act recklessly and foolishly, then there will be consequences. And those occur without any effect on the penalty that's been erased. The judge declares you not guilty, but the father who loves you, because he loves you, he's not going to erase the consequences of your behavior. No. What does the Bible say in Hebrews chapter 12? For whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. He chastens those who are already completely clean. But he chastens them when they don't 
wash their feet, when they don't flee from sin and immorality, and the consequences of those poor decisions, we're left to deal with. What does Hebrews 12 continue to say? The very next verse says, "For it's for discipline that you have to endure. What? The consequences. What are they for again? Discipline. Why? Because He loves you. He's your Father. God is treating you as what? Sons, not as enemies. How does God treat enemies? Enemies pay the penalty for their sin. Sons and daughters, because He loves you, and He's trying to discipline you, He's trying to help you, He treats you as sons. He chastens those whom He loves. Yes. So don't get mixed up. Don't, don't get confused. When you're facing the consequences of your sin, it has nothing to do with your forgiveness. And, it has, and, and what it ought to do is it ought to, something ought to click in your head. And you ought to say, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sanctification is our ever-present reminder that God loves us and desires intimacy with us. And every time He chastens you, He's calling out to you, I love you. I want to know you deeper. And that's why He chastens you. So that you can turn and repent. And then the cycle goes, isn't that beautiful? That's so wonderful. But He's not done one more verse in Hebrews 12. Just keep reading, man. That's good. Verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful. In other words, it's not fun. Yeah, it hurts. And this is what we do. We say, God, it's, uh, it's so painful. I mean, it's, it's take it away. I repent. I'm sorry. And then the consequences linger. And we're just thinking, well, well, what's wrong? Is it is there something I've done? Is it? Well, they seem painful. They're not pleasant. But what do they yield? Look, they yield the peaceful fruit of what? Oh, my goodness. What? The fruit of what? Righteousness. Oh, I get it. You mean, blessed are those who are pure of heart because they shall see God. Why? Because righteousness. Yes, the peace of righteousness. You know what the peace of righteousness is? It's when your feet are washed. There's no better feeling in the world than having your feet washed. And knowing that all of your sin has been forgiven. And walking in newness of life, coming before the Lord's table. And saying, God, repentance leads to revelation, which leads to love, which leads to surrender. Which leads to repentance, which, I mean, it just gets better and better and better. And so the Lord's Supper, it's God's ongoing invitation to His children to have intimacy with Him. He calls us to confession at the table, doesn't He? Yes. Through the reminder of what our sin cost Him. The broken body and the spilled blood of our Savior. Proverbs 28 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, 
But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Find mercy. Mercy. But don't you see it's better than that? Because the gift of repentance is more than just mercy. It's mercy that then leads to all of these amazing blessings of knowing and walking with Him in a deeper way that then spin back around in mercy and just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. So tonight, these tables, I want you to think of them as God's invitation to have your feet washed. Have your feet washed. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's why the Bible says that it's a serious thing for a Christian to partake of this in an unworthy manner. What is an unworthy manner? Why would we do something and not understand what we do? Why? What what is an unworthy manner? An unworthy manner is refusing to repent. An unworthy manner is failing to appreciate what the bread and the cup signify. That, that to, to, to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is to negate or lessen the reality that Christ's love for His bride drove Him to the cross where He died. An unworthy manner is referring to failing to renounce the attitudes and actions that are within us that are inconsistent with the love of Jesus Christ. To partake of an unworthy manner is failing to trust Christ for the cleansing power of forgiveness and for the strength we need to walk in love tomorrow. That's why... Every time we do this, I say, if you're not a believer, if you're uncertain of your standing before God, you just pass the elements to the next person. But if you are a believer, you cannot take of this. You cannot take of this and say, I'm good. I don't have anything to confess. My feet are clean. The Bible says that's why many are sick and die. You don't think God takes this invitation seriously? He says, you do this in remembrance of me. Don't ever forget what it cost me to make you clean so that all you need to do is wash your feet. Let's stand. Bow our heads. Father, we thank You for Your instruction to us, Lord God. And Lord, thank You for the glorious, amazing, unspeakable gift of the invitation of this table, Lord. And so we just thank You and we just praise You, Father, for the love that You show us through the broken 
body of your son Jesus through the spilled blood of the perfect Lamb of God that we might be completely clean and that you love us in such an amazing, wonderful way that you desire intimacy with us. That every man and woman in this room right now, you love and you say, Come on, I'm going to clean your feet. Oh God, help us to remember the warning of what our Lord said to Peter when he said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. So God, we're all sinners. We desire to soar with you in sanctification. So thank you, Father, for not tripping us up on some technicality, that there's no mysterious, secret pattern before us, Lord, but it's just a heart that says, God, I cannot believe how bad my sin is and yet how immensely more glorious your love is. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that we might come before you in Jesus' name, amen. The altar is open if you'd like to come.